If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Over the past two decades, Staten Island has been ravaged by the opioid epidemic that has swept across the nation, with over 1,200 borough residents dying of a drug overdose during that time. Welcome to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene, a podcast bringing you an inside look at the biggest stories on Staten Island with the reporters who cover them. I'm your host, Eric Bascom, and this week I'm joined by Staten Island Advance and SILive.com public interest and advocacy reporter Paul Liotta to discuss the devastating impact that the decades-long opioid epidemic has had on Staten Island. Thanks for joining me today, Paul. Hey, Eric. Yeah, um, appreciate you uh, asking me to be on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a uh, very important topic, obviously. And so let's start at stage one, I suppose. So for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with the topic, can you start off by just explaining what opioids are and, and what kind of drugs are considered opioids? So I think people a lot of the time get confused with opioids and opiates. Opiates are generally natural. Heroin, codeine, opium, those sorts of things come from the poppy plant. But opioids also kind of get into the synthetics, the fentanyl, the cod fentanyl, oxy, Vicodin, those kinds of things. So all opiates are opioids, but not all opioids are opiates. Yeah. And so obviously people have been using and abusing drugs, you know, since the beginning of time, pretty much since humans figured out how they could. Uh, but in the past 20 years or so, the, the U.S. has seen this steady and significant rise in opioid deaths. Can you give us some insight as to when this rise in overdoses started and how widespread of an issue this has become across the country? I mean, yeah, it's definitely a, a nationwide issue. You know, a lot of communities that weren't necessarily impacted by uh, previous drug you know, epidemics, they've been hit pretty hard by this. Think, you know, West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, Staten Island. But yes, the CDC keeps this thing called the wonder system. And essentially since 99, deaths have been on a steady incline. They start seeing real spikes around 2016. And that's where the fentanyl starts to become an issue, particularly on Staten Island. But more broadly, I mean, these deaths kind of fall into this category, uh, deaths of despair, overdoses, things like suicide, deaths linked to poverty. And it's gotten to such a point that life expectancy in the US, there's evidence that it's starting to decline particularly among like uneducated white people. There was a book last year, um, Debts of Despair and the Future of Capitalism, from a pair of Princeton economists, and it kind of lays out what, you know, how bleak this situation really is. Yeah, and it's interesting. You mentioned that this is a, a drug problem that is kind of different in a way that, than some that we've seen in the past and that it's affecting different types of communities. We saw a lot in, in the 80s and, and early 90s of the inner cities and you know crack epidemic and stuff like that. But this really seems to be affecting everyone and also kind of affecting rural areas in a way that we hadn't seen before. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that has been, I think broadly speaking, it's good that there is a more compassionate approach to people who are suffering from, you know, substance abuse issues. But it's unfortunate that it had to take those more, the communities that more represent the majority of the country, white people, for it to move in that direction away from punishment. But 
Yeah, I mean, this has been completely widespread across the country, across socioeconomic lines, across demographic lines, race, age. Yeah, it, it really does seem like something that, that that's affecting everybody in a sense. And so what do experts believe fueled this increase in opioid deaths that started, like you said, kind of around 1999 in that area? Yeah, so this was at a, I was speaking with a doctor from a local hospital and he pointed me in the direction of this study. It was from uh, an organization that sort of oversees standards for hospitals. And they came up with things called vital signs, essentially, so blood pressure, temperature, pulse, and respiration rate. But basically in 2001, they added pain as a, as a concept. And if you've ever been asked by a doctor, you know, scale of one to 10, you know, how's your pain right now? That's sort of what we're talking about. And the thing is that, first off, that's very subjective. I mean, I can break my ankle and feel a 10, and somebody else can feel, you know, break their ankle, feel a 2. And that, like, gets into a realm of how do we get those people down to, say, a 5 if they're at a 10. And then that's how you start getting prescriptions and over-prescriptions of opioids, your oxys, your Vicodins. And this is, like, sort of where we start to see that shift to maybe the more affluent communities. I mean, these are people who wouldn't necessarily have developed an addiction or developed a problem or even been near opioids of any kind, but instead they were, you know, prescribed and often overprescribed these sorts of drugs that people kind of pretended weren't addictive, but, you know, I mean, they were. And everybody's known for hundreds of years that opioids have addictive properties. When she was 33, I sent her away to rehab in Florida for a couple of months. Within three days, when she did come back to Staten Island, I didn't see her for the first three days, and I knew something was wrong then. And then eight days later, a total eight days since she was back from Florida, I was given a CPR in the bedroom about 7.30 in the morning on her mother's birthday. Arthur Masinski's daughter Kathleen died from an overdose on October 17, 2014. He agreed to tell his story to the Staten Island Advance. About 15 minutes, I'm calling to her, and I get no response. So I go in there. The needle's on the bed, and she's sitting on the bed, head slumped down, and she's turning blue. When we got to the hospital, the doctor came over to us and apologized, and I just screamed. Yeah, and it, it's sad because you mentioned the the issue of overprescription and and people getting hooked starting from painkillers. But there's so many instances, right, of these people who they have surgery or something, and then they're prescribed these painkillers. They they start using them, they get addicted to them. They no longer have the prescription, and then they end up seeking out other ways to to feed that addiction that they have, right? And that's where they end up turning sometimes to these to these street drugs, which can in some cases be more dangerous, right? For sure. I think it's important to understand that like all drugs are tools to some extent. I mean, even when we're talking about fentanyl, which is hyper dangerous and is sort of a major issue with street drugs, people mix in fentanyl to things like coke, things like heroin. But even fentanyl has a medical purpose in the sense of somebody who has terminal cancer and if they're in like extreme pain, it could ease that pain and make their suffering a little bit easier. But yeah, I mean, that is a pretty common thread. But uh, yeah, that's some, definitely something I've heard anecdotally that sort of shift. Right, and and you mentioned fentanyl, and it, it seems that the, the opioid crisis has kind of been exacerbated in recent years by the rise of synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Can you explain to our audience just generally w what fentanyl is, how it kind of differs from, from other drugs, and, and why it has driven these overdose rates through the roof in recent years? So essentially it's a, a synthetic opioid that is 
very potent and very dangerous to humans in small quantities. I mean, there's pictures that like the DEA has that like they show you the amount of fentanyl and it's literally like three flakes, something along those lines. And that's what they say can be deadly to humans. Again, I mean, it is something that serves a purpose for people who are in like extreme pain, but street dealers have sort of corrupted their drugs often. They put them in the street drugs, they deal, people take it, they don't know what's in it which is a major problem, especially when you're buying drugs on the street, obviously. And yeah, they overdose, unfortunately, and a lot of them passed away. And I think that was a, a driving force maybe four or five years ago. It's still an issue undoubtedly, but there has been work done to address it. And so like we mentioned earlier, this is obviously a nationwide issue, but Staten Island seems to have been hit particularly hard by this rise in overdose deaths. How big of a problem has this been on Staten Island, and, and how do the numbers here compare to some of the other boroughs in the city? So the latest data, I was looking at this last night, from the City Department of Health, Mental Hygiene. So last year we actually, and these are still preliminary numbers, we weren't that bad. Not last year, I should say, 2019. There was only 92 deaths. I think we were third in the city. But before that, essentially for the past 15 years, it's like the Bronx and Staten Island go back and forth for like the worst overdose death rates in the city. But it kind of speaks to that socioeconomic, like there is no real divide anymore. It just kind of speaks to how there is that permeation between rich people, poor people, middle class people, everybody's you know, developing these problems for some reason. We'll be right back. The Mayor of Maple Avenue is a powerful multi-part podcast about Sean Sinisey, a victim of former Penn State football coach Terry Sandusky, who was arrested 10 years ago for numerous child sexual abuse charges. The podcast series is written and hosted by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Sarah Gannam, who takes listeners into the world of addiction rehabilitation, where society can be quick to celebrate the consequences for abusers while not addressing the needs of their victims. Subscribe now to The Mayor of Maple Avenue wherever you get your podcasts. And so what does the data say in, in terms of where these overdose deaths are, are taking place on Staten Island? Is this something that may be specific to, a, to an area or a neighborhood that might have been hit harder than others? Or is this something that we're seeing throughout the borough, like you mentioned, that we're seeing throughout the city? Uh, it's definitely something throughout the borough. But I think the, the areas that have gotten the most publicity are, I mean, essentially the city divides Staten Island into four parts, but the part that has had the highest rate, I think in 2018, 2017, is called South Beach Tottenville. It's essentially the whole East Shore, the whole South Shore. That has had the highest overdose death rate. But the reasons for that are probably very complicated. But yeah, I mean, it's it impacted the whole city, impacted the whole island. Yeah, and like you mentioned earlier, that, that might be surprising to some people because oftentimes, rightly or wrongly, they associate the, the North Shore of, of Staten Island with, with higher crime rates, higher drug rates, uh, for whatever reason that may be. Um, but then, like you said, this is something that we're seeing is affecting everyone and even the people on the South Shore who may be of uh, a higher socioeconomic status or, or different demographic. Also, they actually seem to be bearing the brunt of this, which, which shows just kind of how it's, how it's been different than previous drug problems that we've had in the past. And so 
You've obviously spoken to tons of medical experts, drug experts throughout your coverage of this issue. And so have they given any indication as to, to why Staten Island may have been disproportionately affected compared to some of the other boroughs or some of the other places around the country? Early in you know, what is referred to as like the opioid epidemic, it was the, the overprescription of painkillers. Uh, that was very early on, and then I think, you know, in those whiter, more affluent communities, there was, like, a level of shock, and a lot of people were caught off guard and, like, didn't really see it coming. But, I mean, since then, it, we're far enough removed from that that I think it's, you know, something much broader now. And I think it goes into, you know, generational issues, the, the overall direction of the country, um, that death of despair stuff that we talked about a little bit. Uh, I think it's sort of, I think it's just the country's kind of in a bleak spot and a lot of people feel that. And drugs can be a, a relief from that to some extent. You know, to that point, this is obviously a, a somber issue and, and one that can't always be easy to report on, especially when you're speaking with some of the family members of Staten Islanders who have died of overdoses. And so I know that you've spoken to lots of parents who have lost children to these overdoses and, and kind of what were those conversations like? What were you hearing from them? Yeah, I mean, when I first started doing this, it was, I essentially went to like a meeting. It's a, it's a grief group for parents who have lost children and most of them to drug overdose. But it was, they were just all in like this one house and it was like they were in a circle and they were all just essentially sharing very similar stories. But there was that, you know, very definitive unifying thread that they didn't want it to happen to anybody else. And yeah, they all have those same stories, the change in behavior, the stealing, the blaming themselves afterward. Yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty bleak stuff, but they did all have that, like, we don't want this to happen to anybody else kind of thing. And a lot of the work they do is geared toward that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, like you kind of just mentioned, r reporting on topics like this for an extended period of times sometimes can be, for lack of a better term, depressing. You're you're constantly dealing with, with very heavy topics, addiction, drug abuse, death. So what has that experience been like for you reporting on this over the years? Have you found it to be to be draining in any sense? Do you find it to be rewarding because you're sharing valuable stories? I don't know if thankfully is the right word, but uh, I've sort of moved away from it in the past year and a half and I go back and forth in my head if I like want to actually go back to that stuff because it is so heavy but I mean look obviously I've known people who have you know passed away because of drugs I mean I think everybody on the island does to one extent or another but I haven't been particularly closely impacted by it thankfully so I think I have a sort of ability to compartmentalize which I think is helpful. But yeah, when I was doing this, it was like right after I did a whole project on suicide, which again is sort of, I think they're very tied in, in terms of like why people are making these decisions with their lives and dying in these ways. But yeah, it was pretty heavy for a while. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot to think about. It's a lot to like grasp, particularly when it's young people. I mean, a lot of these kids that I've reported on are, I mean, they would have been my age. Like, literally, like, right there. And it's just like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot to consider. 
yeah, it's very tough, especially with the with the younger groups. And, you know, like you mentioned, you know, people who, who have passed away of overdoses. I know people of growing up on Staten Island my whole life that I would see around the neighborhood that I might have went to high school with who have passed away from overdoses, same age as us, mid to late 20s. And, and to see that it's, you know, it, it hurts in a sense and it, it can be it can be very scary and it, it can be very sad. So so clearly this is a major issue for the borough. But what are the elected officials and, and some of the government agencies? in the city doing to try and address it? Yeah, I mean, they've all... I mean, I think everybody recognizes the issue, so it's not like there's anyone left who's either has their head in the sand or is still trying to go with that, like, war on drugs mentality. It does seem like there's a consensus or maybe a move toward consensus that that hasn't worked and we need to, you know, kind of switch it up. Obviously, there's been a lot of good work done. I think I have disagreements still with most politicians, on this issue, but I think that's because they have to, uh, they have to make like real genuine political considerations about this stuff. That being said, there's obviously been a lot of like well-publicized stuff on Staten Island. District Attorney's Hope Program is really the first thing that comes to mind. And that's like a very well-intentioned, well-thought-out program that essentially if you are a lower-level nonviolent drug offender, instead of getting steered into that criminal justice system, you know, jail, prison, that kind of thing. They bring you into the treatment world. And he has, like, real evidence that it's worked in terms of, like, helping people. Obviously, you hear anecdotes about any program, and it colors your thinking in a certain way that it might not be working fully as intended, but it does seem to be one of the better programs across the country. Yeah, and I know another thing that the city has kind of prioritized in recent years is the use of naloxone. And, you know, they've invested tens of millions of dollars in increasing the supplies for that and and giving out training so that people know how to administer it. Can you talk a little bit about that, kind of what it is and how it works and, and the role that it plays in preventing these overdose deaths? So essentially, I mean, all of these drugs, they interact with your brain in certain ways. Opioids are depressants. That's what kills you. Your faculties become so reduced that eventually you essentially stop breathing. And that's how people overdose and die. What naloxone does is that it, it blocks the receptors that opioids affect and it prevents the opioids from further reducing your faculties. And it's, it's an emergency thing. And give it to the person up their nose. And I mean, it saves a lot of lives. So at the very least, it should be credited for that. You know, everything went black and uh, that was it, the lights were out. Ralph Montanaro had a nearly fatal overdose on heroin laced with fentanyl. Uh, you know, the police and EMS came. I was narcan uh, several times. That's how powerful that drug was. Um, they were able to revive me. Yeah, and so throughout your reporting, like I mentioned earlier, you've spoken to so many different people on this issue uh, about the city's response to the opioid crisis. What more do they say needs to be done to combat this deadly issue? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ideas out there about what the right direction is with this stuff. I think it's something that is going to continue, and as attitudes get better, hopefully it improves, particularly on the issue of whether or not people are dying. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like you said at the top that there's always going to be drug use, and there always has been drug use amongst humanity. 
Yeah, and I think that the the point that you just made about kind of people moving in that more compassionate direction and and kind of eliminating the stigma, right, around drug use and in, in the past we've just kind of branded these people as addicts and we're we're blaming them for their for their actions and if you don't want to overdose just don't do drugs, the type of mentality and it's good to see that we seem to be moving away from that in, in some sense. We've seen the same type of thing with mental illness in in recent years as like you said it's it's more of an, a progressive approach and understanding, you know, the, you know, what's behind the scenes and what's kind of fueling these issues and, and trying to understand that, you know, these people, no one wants to hurt themselves. No one wants to, to die of a drug overdose and just trying to be compassionate and trying to figure out ways to help these people as opposed to, to demonizing them in a sense. For sure. I mean, I mean, first off, people are always going to take drugs. Uh, I'm of that opinion. People have figured out opioids maybe a thousand, two thousand years ago, and they've been using them ever since. You know, you had opium in the early 1900s. There was a heroin epidemic in the 70s, along with crack uh, in the 80s and 90s. Not that that's an opioid, but it's all kind of tied in together. And now you have this ongoing 20-year crisis that it doesn't really seem to have an end in sight. But I mean, thankfully, there is that shift toward compassion away from incarceration. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul. It has been great talking with you, although on this somber but very important topic. So I I appreciate you coming on and, and keep up the great work. For sure. Thanks for having me, guys. Did you know on April 22nd, 1948, New York City's first drive in movie theater opened in New Springville? Thank you for listening to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit SILive.com for the latest on all these stories and more. Thank you for supporting local journalism.